Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into the word this morning. We have, uh, well, we got, got more time than I thought I'd have. Uh, last week, we were looking at the passage where the angels visited the shepherds. And we were looking at this theme. Uh, we're looking at the Christmas story during this season. I always love to preach on the Christmas story. And it's not like you can't do it the rest of the year, but it just seems right to do it at this time of year. And uh, so last week, we were looking at how the angels came and met the shepherds. And uh, we focused on that, that phrase where the angels said to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. So what he was doing is he, they, these, this angel, uh, initially it was one, then it was a whole choir of angels, that the angel was wanting to make sure that they didn't miss what God was doing. You know, the Lord lays out signs for us. Signs point to something. They're not, they're not something in and of themselves. They point to the important thing. And the Lord laid out signs so that the shepherds wouldn't miss what was going on. He gave them the coordinates to the treasure, gave them uh, the indications of what God was doing. And God lays out signs for you and I so that we don't miss what he's doing. You know, we can miss God's activity in our day and age. That needs to put a little fear of the Lord in us, that God can be doing something that we can miss if we don't understand the signs. And so we looked at that theme last week about how God laid out these signs and he said this, he said, this shall be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so we, we talked about how God has his infant expression. And the danger is, is that we look for the full-blown uh, fulfillment of what God is doing, and we reject it if it's not the full mature manifestation. And there's a tendency for all of us to do that. We receive the promise. When, when we receive the promise, God talks to us about the full-blown manifestation, the mature thing. You know, the masses followed Jesus. The masses rallied around him and accepted his teachings. The masses uh, were in awe of his miracles and, and uh, in awe of his teaching. But it was just a few small players in this narrative that jumped on at the beginning. And we want to be those who are the early adopters in what God is doing. We want to be part of pioneering a move and not simply jumping on after the fact. We, God needs those who will pay the price on the front end so everybody else can enter in on the back end. And so what that demands is that we have eyes to see and recognize things early on. That we're not looking for the full-blown manifestation, but we understand those signs, those indications that he's beginning to move. And so God needs those who recognize the infant expression of what he's doing. It's easy to jump on when it's full grown, but it's easy to miss when it's in the infant expression. And so we were talking about that last week, and we talked about how swaddling cloths, they would wrap the baby very tight in these strips of cloth, and then they laid him in a manger. That manger was a feeding trough. And so it's 
an, uh, the, the infant expression, very little movement, lying in the ordinary, and that is the signal that God's beginning to move. And we talked about how if that's the criteria, well, we could see that anywhere. If it's a little, you know, the small thing, the beginning, little movement, and laying in the ordinary, then we could say, well, I can see that anywhere. And that is the point. For those with prophetic eyes to see, they'll recognize God's moving on the front end. And I'm very, very concerned that often God is already moving. He's already answering our prayer, but we reject it because it's not the full grown thing that he's promised us. Well, the promise is a picture of the ultimate. When we receive a prophecy, it's very rarely God's going to begin a work in you that will take 10 years to happen. And it's not going to be a big deal, but just recognize it. That's usually not the prophecy, is it? The prophecy is that, this, that there's going to be you know, a Messiah that's going to uh, give his life for the world. These big overarching themes. And God gives us these prophetic words and he gives us these overarching themes and that's good. But the beginning of the fulfillment of that is often something very insignificant. That's why the angel had to say, this will be a sign to you. It's going to be a baby. Because after having an encounter with an angel, you're going to reject it when you walk in and there's just this crying kid with messy diapers sitting in a cattle trough. You'd say, this is it, this is the fulfillment. Yes, if you understand the sign, if you have eyes to see and you look at with prophetic eyes, then you will recognize what God is doing. And we wanna be those people, we wanna be a pioneering people, we wanna be a prophetic people that adopt on the front end. God needs those who will yield their life. So I'm, I'm kinda, <laughs> I'm, I'm, Focusing on last week's message, trying to discern where to jump into this one, because I've got three different messages on my heart this morning, three different things, and I didn't know how much time I would have. But God is looking for those who will cooperate with him. So let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we thank you for our kids and Lord, just as Pastor John said, they are a sign to us. They are the coming move of God. We thank you for that. Lord Jesus, just as you were the beginning of the move of God that would literally alter all of history. Lord, we thank you for our own kids and what you're doing in them. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning instruct us. And Father, I'm asking God that you would make this place a house of early adopters. Lord, a place where people will yield their life to be used of you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the common themes in the, in the scriptures when we talk about Christmas, one of the things that's emphasized, even from a little kid, I, I remember always hearing how there was no place for him in the inn. And they would talk about, do you have place for him in your life? And I, I think that's a valid expression. But we talk about there's no place for him in the inn. And we think of Jesus as, uh, you know, his parents coming to town and they go to the holiday inn, but it's full. 
You know, or it's the, the best Western or the, the, the Super 8 and it's full and so they're looking for a place to land. But really, that's not what was really going on here. And this, in the picture, what was happening was that uh, the, the, the emperor had said, we're gonna take a census. It was the first worldwide census, and really not worldwide, but it was the Roman Empire. They were gonna take a census so that he could make sure he got all the tax revenue that was uh, due him as the emperor. And so what he did is he declared that everybody had to be counted. And the Jewish people did it in a certain way. They said, everybody's gonna return to their hometown. Well, because everybody was returning to their hometown, the, the, the town of their lineage, then the, the rooms filled up quickly. But this was not a hotel room, so to speak. It was guest quarters. The Greek word that's used there is really the guest quarters. And the idea would be that every home would have a place where you could put up guests. Uh, usually it was the upper floor. The bottom floor was where they would live during the day. But at night, the, co- the, the, the livestock would move in. I know, not a very pretty picture. I imagine they would really clean in the morning. But the livestock would be in the bottom of the house and that's where they did their business from their home. And the cattle and the the livestock would work kind of as a heater, so to speak, and the heat would rise from the animals in the bottom and it would warm the sleeping quarters up top. And amongst those rooms, they would have a small guest room. But because everybody was coming into their hometown, the guest room was already, fulfilled, was already filled. And so Mary and Joseph show up in their hometown to stay with relatives and the living quarters or the guest quarters uh, are already filled. So what they had to do is they had to sleep with the animals in the lower part of the house. Now there may be another reason that they were relegated to the animals' quarters. That was because it's very clear from the scriptures that Mary and Joseph had not yet taken their vows in marriage, and she shows up nine months pregnant, ready to give birth. And this would have been a scandalous thing. It it still holds some stigma today in some respects in our, our culture at times, but nowhere near as much as it once did, and nowhere near as much as it would have in Jewish culture. And so Mary and Joseph show up and they're betrothed to be married, but yet Mary is nine months. She's, I like how the King James Version poetically puts it, she is great with child. She's ready to give birth. And it very well may have been that they could have made room for them in the upper story, but they didn't because of the stigma associated with her carrying this child. And that brings us to a point, if we're going to be early adopters, if we're going to be on the front end of what God is doing, if we're going to be pioneers and not people who jump in after the fact, then there has to be somebody that bears the stigma of what God is doing. Whenever God is moving, whenever God is doing a new thing, somebody has to pave the way. And what the few recognize as God prophetically acting most will reject as not of God. And we see this with Mary and Joseph. To me, it's fascinating how God intentionally placed them in this position where they are gonna look unfaithful when they were the most faithful people in all of Israel at that time. When they had yielded their lives to the purposes of God, yet God orchestrated it so they didn't have a way out. They either had to say no to God or look like they were being unfaithful. And if you know anything about revival history, you'll see that marker show up again and again. That often people who are on the front end of a move of God, 
will end up being involved in things that, by and large, the church itself rejects. And they have to pay a price. They have to embrace that thing. And they're paving the way for the others. And I believe that the reason God builds this scandal into what he's doing, and I use that word very, very specifically, the reason God builds that scandal in is because one of the things that's necessary in the human soul in order to be used by God is a level of humility. We have to die to our own reputations. And this happens again and again. That's not a one-time thing, you know. Well, I'm going to die to my reputation early on and then I'm done with that. This is the thing that we have to deal with for the rest of our life. And every fresh move of God demands a fresh surrender and that we have to embrace that on the front end. Especially those who get in on the front end of a move of God. God will go out of his way to be scandalous. Let me just let that settle there for a minute. God will go out of his way to be scandalous. He really will. God will never be immoral. Absolutely, we understand that. But God will do things that are misunderstood by the vast majority of people. And he's looking for those who will side with him in his purposes. The word scandal comes from the Greek word scandalon. And it's the very word that Paul uses when he says, the gospel is foolishness to them that do not believe, but the wisdom of God to those who do. In other words, to the unbeliever, we can stand on the outside and it's scandalous. We look at it and say, that can't be God. But to those that believe and they're on the inside of things, they recognize it, very, it, it, it is God. But God will go out of his way. He built this thing into the gospel. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's, it, we were talking about how A.W. Tozer has that wonderful quote where he says, there's a place in God where the mind must wait humbly outside while the heart goes into worship. There's a place in God where our mind has to say, this is beyond me, but I know this is right. I see it in the word. I sense the witness in my spirit. I know, I know this is right. I don't understand it, but God, I'm gonna yield to you. And God will demand that on the front end because he's trying to break us from that thing that led to the fall, one of which was the desire to appear wise. The forbidden fruit looked as though it would make one wise, and that was part of the lure. And that desire to be sophisticated, to look wise, is one of the lures the enemy uses to pull us in. And I'm telling you, in this hour in human history right now, for the church of Jesus Christ, we have got to confront that thing face on. I believe that right now there's some things in the balances in the church, and I don't know how much we're going to have to face that, but... Mark my word, we are going to have to face that. That we're going to have to be willing to look unwise before the world. You see, this desire, let me, let me get off on a little tangent, get away from Christmas for a moment. This desire to look sophisticated, I believe, is one of the major things that is, that is plaguing the church and undermining her, uh, her authority and her power in this age. Because the same gospel that is foolishness to those that don't believe is the power of God to those who do. It's a package deal. And if you reject looking like a fool, you forfeit the power. 
But if you want the power, you'll be required at some point to embrace looking like a fool. There are times where I've talked with other pastors and they've questioned some of the things that have gone on in this church. And I've had to own it or reject it to have a a reputation with those pastors. You see, not all unbelievers are unbelievers. There are unbelieving believers out there. And, I, and I'm not, I'm not pointing, I'm not, I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek. I say it with a broken heart. But I do know this, that God will use unbelieving believers to do a work in us and cause us to stand with him. And to do so humbly and not arrogantly. To side with heaven in what God is doing in the hour in which we believe. Or in which we, in which we exist right now. There's this thing right now of this wanting to look woke and, and like we're, we're, we're in touch with the culture. But the danger of that is, is that we're like a doctor that just says, come and diagnose yourself and we'll give you the medicine that you think you need. And we end up causing more problems with our cure because we haven't really diagnosed the problem. What I mean is, is that if we are looking at the culture and if we start with the culture and say, you tell me what the problem is and then I'll go to the word and find answers for you, we end up on the wrong side of a lot of issues. When what we need to do is we need to get before the Lord and cry out to him and say, God, help us to get to the root cause. Now, a good doctor will tell someone, they'll say, what, what, what ails you? What hurts? But you don't let them diagnose themselves. My, my daughter, she is uh, pushing 30 years old, has spent her entire life in a wheelchair. She's a very, very bright young woman. And she loves to watch videos on uh, you know, anatomy and medicine and all this stuff. And that is, that is great. I, I love how motivated she is. I'll come in and she'll say, Dad, I've got my studies, self-imposed schedules. I'm gonna be, I got my reading and I'm trying to learn this language and I'm doing all this. And that's great. That, she's awesome. The downside of that is because she has so many health problems, she diagnoses herself. And she is sure as shooting. She's, I know what's wrong with me, Dad. And, and I'll tell her, you know, we'll, we'll even get in arguments. She's not here this morning, so I can talk freely. We'll get in arguments. And then I'll say, okay, I'll take you to the doctor. And lo and behold, we'll get in the doctor's office. And you know what? The doctor will tell her just what I told her. And yes, I say, I told you so. <laughs> but see, the problem is, is she goes beyond saying, this is where it hurts. She wants to tell them what she thinks the cause is. Now, she won't tell them this is what the problem is. She'll say, this is what I'm wondering. And they'll step around and say, well, no, it's this and this, and they'll get to the bottom of it. A good doctor will hear the pain of the patient, but they'll diagnose the cause. A bad doctor will just be a doctor feel good and just hand out drugs to people saying, well, you just tell me what your pain is and what the root cause is, and then I'll give you drugs according to what you think. And to be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ... When we hear the pain of the world, we need to listen to that, discern what's really behind that from the word of God. We start with the word, we end with the word, and we give the world what they need. And it may make make us look like we're out of touch and not woke, but we will have the power of God. 
And we, we need to be so careful in this hour because there is this thing, there's pressure. And I'm telling you, that is increasing in this hour. And I'm just not so sure that some of that God's not allowing. God is pushing things because he wants to push that, those things to the surface in his bride and make us choose because it's going to purify the bride of Christ and it's, it's going to prepare us for the next outpouring of power. But we have to press in and really choose to side with what heaven says. And so there's this scandal built into the gospel that, G, that the Spirit of God comes to this young virgin girl betrothed to be married and he says to her greetings you who are highly favored and she's troubled she's puzzled she she doesn't realize that she's a candidate to be used by God she's she's just this young girl going after God as best she knows how she's got dreams of being married and starting a family she's already betrothed she's engaged to be married, and all of a sudden, this whole thing is disrupted by an angelic visitation, and the angel tells her that you are going to be found with child. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to overshadow you, and that which was, is within you is going to be found to be the child of God. He explains that to her only after she asks this question. She said, how can this thing be? I've always been intrigued by that. And I think we can learn a lesson from Mary. She heard the, the word, you are going to be with child. And then she asked, how is this going to be fulfilled? I was talking to someone the other night. We were doing some training in the prophetic on Wednesday nights. And uh, we were talking after last Wednesday night. We were talking about how there's such a thing as divine revelation. We get a word. But then there's divine interpretation. Not not just getting the word, but interpreting. What does it mean? Because you can have divine revelation, but your own interpretation. Been there, done that. Not so pleasant. And then there's divine application. And if you don't have divine interpretation, you end up having a faulty application. And it can be a real word. And so we need to cooperate with God in the process. And Mary... To me, it, it, I, I, I don't understand what possessed her. She was right, but why would she say, how will these things happen? She's already engaged. I, I would have figured, oh man, angels showed up and told me about my, my new marriage to Joe and we're gonna have a really great kid. But somehow she discerned that that's not what was going on here. And she yields herself, and the, the, the angel says, the spirit of God will hover over you and that which is within you will be found to be of the spirit of God. It's gonna be the son of God. And she yielded herself to this and embraced a scandal that would pursue her and, and, and be connected to her for the rest of her then known life and the life of the child she would be given birth to. You know, during Jesus' life, he was known as an illegitimate child by those from that, that vicinity. They looked at him as this illegitimate child. I mean, what a, what a cruel statement to put on a child. I remember I had a dear friend uh, years ago. She was really troubled. She found out that she was born out of wedlock. 
And she was just tormented with this thought, I'm an illegitimate child. And, and the more, uh, you know, colorful word uh, that, that is used for children of that situation. And she was just really struggling. The enemy was tormenting her. And I remember talking to her and I said, why, why would you embrace that? Why would, why would you, that you have a destiny in God. Whatever happened, somebody made a mistake. Somebody did something that has nothing to do with you. We still celebrate you. That's why we still celebrate a child regardless of how it was conceived. We don't, we don't punish the child for a momentary situation that happened. Now, we try to protect our children from those kind of things happening, but the fact is that was an event and this is a life. And we celebrate that. We don't allow someone to be defined by something their parents did. That we celebrate this life. And she really got set free. She was, this, this thing was tormenting her. And they tried to put that on Jesus. The irony is, if there was ever a legitimate birth in the human race, it was his. Isn't that amazing? The spirit of the living God overshadowed this young girl. And she, beca she became, became with child by the spirit of God. And yet she would carry that scandal for her entire life. And make no mistake about it, Mary understood what she was embracing when that happened. She weighed that thing and she understood the scandal it was going to be. And it wasn't just Mary. If you're looking, I believe it's Luke gives us the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. Matthew gives us the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. Let's look at Matthew real quick here. I, I want to read it to you how succinctly it says it. It, it doesn't give us any wiggle room what God is saying here. Matthew, uh, Matthew 1, 18. Right in the first chapter. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's setting up the scenario. This is how it happened. When... Okay, so it's giving us the time frame, right? That's what the word when means. A good reporter is going to ask that question. When? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before, so now it gives the other bookend. It says she'd been betrothed on one end, but before what? They came together as man and wife before they'd consummated their union. And we know from the text it was before they were even married. She was found to be with child. That word found can mean discovered. It became obvious. She was probably wearing really loose clothing for a while, but then there came a point where she could miss it no longer. God bless you ladies that give birth. It is an amazing thing. And every time, I mean, seriously, it is such an amazing thing that a woman can give birth. And every time I see a pregnant woman, you look so full of life, you're glowing, and every time I thank God I'm a man. It's, it's just a beautiful thing. It is. It's an amazing thing. You are tougher than we are, okay? So just ask my wife. When I get sick, I get sicker than she does. She doesn't believe me. I, I don't, ladies just don't get it as bad as men do. But anyway. And then they're, then they're incompassionate to us. I don't understand it. So 
genetically, I think when we get to heaven, God's going to show us that genetically men suffer more with the common cold than a woman does. And you ladies are going to feel real bad about how you treated us. But that's for another day, okay? That's for another day. So now let, let's look at this again before I get in trouble here. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that's one bookend, but before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? So then it says, and her husband Joseph, being a, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It says that in Jewish culture, she would have literally had to divorce her to get out of an engagement. That's how seriously that was taken. That they would have had to divorce to get out of this engagement because uh, in, in Jewish culture, you don't, you don't play with someone's emotions by just, hey, I'll make a commitment and then I'll, you know, then, ah, no, yes, and move in and out of that. It was a serious thing. And so here's this, this situation where Mary yields herself to the Lord, knowing what was going to happen. But then Joseph he just thought he was falling in love. He just wanted to start a family like any good Jewish man. And all of a sudden, between the point in which he's publicly committed himself to marry her, but before he has a chance to do so, God, in that little window of time, God chooses that little sliver of his life to say, now, this is when the Spirit of God's going to overshadow his fiance, and she's going to be found to be with child. What in the world is going on here? I'm telling you that God will go out of his way to force you to embrace the scandal of his workings. And God could have very easily done it before Joe ever popped the question. And all of a sudden, and God could have visited him with an angel. That girl that's carrying a child, it is from the Lord. And I want you to pop the question and give a good name to this child. And Joseph could have been the hero. Swept in, married her, and everybody went, wow, what an awesome guy. Or God could have come to Joe the night before they got married. Don't touch her, buddy. She's going to give birth to a child, and it's going to be the son of God. And Joe, no one would have had to know. It could have been undercover. And Joe could have still looked like a moral man. But that's not what happened. God takes this little sliver of his life, this little tiny window of time, and says, okay, he's made it public. They haven't had time to get married. Now's the time that the Spirit of God's going to overshadow her and she's going to be with child. And it's that thing where Joseph has to yield to what the Lord is doing. And in so doing, he has to kiss his reputation goodbye. You know what everybody was thinking. I don't imagine they told very many people the story at the outset anyway. Who's going to believe them? And those they did tell thought one of two things about Joe. Joe is a sucker because he's believing his girlfriend. Boy, is he foolish. Or, Joe is a liar and an immoral man. And either way, it didn't fare good for Joseph's reputation. But there's something that God 
was doing in this scenario. And I'm telling you, for the early adopters, we have to embrace what God is doing and often it will cost us the respect of many around us. And that's okay. Because God needs, there's, there's a reason for that deep working. It's God needs humility worked in our heart where we're impervious to the opinions of other people. Not in an arrogant way, but in a, in a, a broken way that it, we're, we're committed to him. And so we're saying, God, whatever it takes. And when the Lord can find those people, he can begin to introduce his move into the world. So we see this scandal element to the gospel. Many of you have heard me talk about this years ago when I first became the pastor at Heartland. I was studying this very passage. It was probably, I, I became the pastor here in 2003. Before that, Kathy and I were, were helping out here, but uh, we were working at Teen Challenge. Or no, was, was it 2002? 2003, uh, 2003. And uh, two? 2002, okay. And uh, I'm trying to stay younger. I, had, I really had color in my beard back then. And uh, so I was studying this passage and the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And he told me, he said, I want you to be a Joseph. I don't need you to give life to the bride. But I need you to lend your good name to that which others will think is illegitimate until it can, it can exist on its own. Want you to lend your good name. See, the job of a pastor is not to impart life to the bride. That's God's job. The Spirit of God will hover, hover over the bride. But what God is looking for are those who will take what he's, what he's invested in them of credibility, take our reputations and, and cover that thing and protect it until it can ex exist on its own. And now I look back and, I, you know, it, 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 does, it, it almost feels doesn't make the same amount of sense it did at that time. Because at that time, there was a very uh, controversial move of God still going on in the earth. So we started taking trips up to Toronto, Canada, and we'd take a bunch of cars up there. Matter of fact, I was watching a video of when we were up there last time, and uh, I saw a picture of Gene. He had a head full of hair, too. And uh, it was long before I knew Gene, and there was Gene getting prayed for. He was a revival hound. He'd made his way to Toronto. And we were just hungry for a move of God, but a lot of people looked at that as an illegitimate thing. That's not of God. And God went out of his way to be controversial in that move. Broke out in the, in the mid-90s. It did. He, God went out of his way to be controversial. There were, there were some crazy things that happened up in that, those meetings. And in, as a result, crazy things that happened in our church. I've got pictures of the, the church carrying me around <laughs> where I'm laid out. And, and uh, it looks so crazy now, but if you were there, I, mean, I remember visitors being in that service and I called them thinking they'll never be back. And, and what they said was, I love this church. This is what I've been looking for. I remember this one Baptist couple that had just started coming to the church and I thought, oh no, we lost them. And 
at the moment, I was so overcome by the Spirit of God, I, I was just weeping and just crying out to God. And when I looked up, I, there was the husband laid out on the floor just weeping. And I went to him and I said, hey, if you have any questions about what he just said, I don't have any questions. I love this. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. When it's really God and your heart is hungry, you'll be swept up in it. But God will do things that are controversial. God will work in your life. There are times God will hide things from others that he will show to you because you've got to bear the stigma for a season. And if we embrace that, it's part of the school of the spirit that God uses to prepare us. No, I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm not talking about intentionally seeking to be controversial. I remember during those days where all that was happening, I remember this one, one woman came to me and she said, the Lord asked me, how controversial do I want to be? She asked me, pastor, how controversial do you want to be? I said, I have no aspirations of being controversial. It's not a goal. It's something I'm willing to embrace to get to what God wants. I'm willing to embrace it if need be, but I'm not looking to cultivate it. I'm not looking to be controversial, but I'm willing to embrace it if need be. You look at the, the wise men, the, the magi, when they came to find Jesus, I, would, I was watching the kids this morning and during worship, I just opened that passage. Uh, it just struck me for a moment in worship. And it says that these wise men, when they came to the child, they fell down and worshiped him. This wasn't a tame, you know, a tame response to who Jesus was. They weren't like, wow, we, we recognize this. He's the real deal you know, in a very cerebral way. I mean, there was passion. They fell down before him. How in the world did they find him when the Jewish leaders of Jesus' own day couldn't even find him? It's because they, like the shepherds, understood signs. You know, the Magi were the Persian coronation committee. They were the kingmakers of the Persian Empire. Nobody could ascend to the Persian throne without the Magi endorsing them. They had to sign off and say, yep, that's the guy that's going to sit on the throne. So when these Magi, they, that's short for magician. They were astrologers. They, were, they, were, they, they studied the secret arts. They, were, they delved into occultic things. They were hungry for the supernatural. But they had somebody back in their lineage that at one time had led them, a guy by the name of Daniel, a prophet of God. And they still had some of his writings. And he had so influenced this Persian magi, this sect of wise men, very educated men. And they would be, they would be educated in all these different things. And one of the things that they, were, they had was the Hebrew scriptures and they found in Micah. They quoted it to Herod. They were hungry. They, they understood the signs of the times and therefore knew what they should do. And they made their way and they embraced the controversy. They went to King Herod and said, where is the king of the Jews? Now, don't just read over that quickly. Think about that for a moment. That's a pretty crazy thing to do. 
to go to a sitting king and say, hey, where's the real one? We understand that you're the fraudulent one. Where's the real guy? Essentially, that's what they're communicating to him. And there had been wars with the, uh, Herod had had to go in and push back some Persian uh, encroachment on his kingdom. There had been skirmishes already. And all of a sudden, this coronation committee shows up and says, we're here to worship the king of the Jews. We, we, we know because we've been following his star. There was a controversy with this. And when they found him, they fell at his feet. It's so like all these people, there was, they were willing to embrace this thing, the price of getting this thing off the ground. Those of you who were around back in those early days that I was just referring to back in 2003, 2004, there was this ravenous hunger that we had for God. And, and you know, there's, there's, the, there's always two sides to a move of God. There's the divine side and there's the human side. There's the divine side. God has to initiate and God has to grace. But there's the human side. We have to respond and make room. And those of you that remember those days, there was this hunger for the things of God and hunger for a fresh move. I feel that same thing rising. There's this desire, there's this, this thing that's on the horizon. And I'm telling you, God is looking to enlist early adopters. He's looking to, to those who, for those who will say, I'm in. I'm willing to embrace the scandal. It doesn't matter if other people understand. I'm willing to get in on this thing. I'm willing to look to the signs. And again, I'm not talking about looking crazy. The wise men, they were wise because they not only looked, they, they understood the signs in the heavens, they followed a star, but they also looked to the word and they quoted it to Herod. There was this connection between what they were, the signs and wonders in the heavens above and what they saw written in the word. And they put those two together and they came to the right place. And God is looking for those who will get in on the front end. God's looking for early adopters. And let me just throw this out and we'll close. If you look at all these different groups of people in this narrative, the, the nativity narrative, you have the shepherds, you have Mary and Joseph, you have the wise men, you have Herod. All of them are symbols of dynamics in every move of God, every one of those players. And the wise men, one of the roles that they played is that when they saw him, they threw everything at his feet, they fell at his feet and they worshiped him and they gave gifts. And true worship will always do that. Where It's that thing of laying everything we have at his feet. And what struck me this morning as I was worshiping, I thought, what's the deal? Pagan magicians understood the signs of the times more than the learned Jewish rulers. They showed up when the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't. And when they did see him, it wasn't some casual acknowledgement. They threw themselves at his feet and worshiped him as the king. Let's go ahead and stand this morning.
I'm going to ask you to lift your hands to the Lord this morning. Oh, King Jesus. Lord, we ask, God, that you would deliver us from the apathy of religion. Lord, the religious rulers waited, expecting the Messiah to present himself. Well, the hungry pagans studied the words, studied your word, and looked to the heavens and went searching for him. Lord, I'm asking God that you'd give us a fresh hunger. And Lord, make this a house of early adopters. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the earth in this hour. And Lord, we're telling you this morning, if you're looking for someone to bear the stigma so that you can move, Lord, we're telling you, you found it in this house. Lord, we'll go with you. Do with us as you please, Lord. And I want to encourage you this morning to just weigh those things before the Lord. It's one thing to make those declarations when they're not specific. It's another thing when it costs you relationships and misunderstandings. But there's something about the gospel that not only unifies, it also divides. Lord, we ask that you would help us, God, to be those that discern what you're doing, Lord, and get in on the front end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.